Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and today I'm talking to Matthew Cutter, author of Closer You Are, the story of Robert Pollard and Guided by Voices. You can now listen to episodes on our brand new BrotherPod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. It's also a place where you can interact with us directly through the talkback feature, ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile devices. As always, you can listen to our Spotify playlists curated for each episode. You can also learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, a conversation with Matthew Cutter, author of Closer You Are, the story of Robert Pollard and Guided by Voices. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I am here today with Matthew Cutter, uh, the author of the fantastic new Closer You Are, the story of Robert Pollard and Guided by Voices, uh, which in the subtitle pretty much tells you uh, what the subject matter is. Uh, Thank you for coming on, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So let me ask you first, uh, how did you arrive at at, uh, writing the definitive and authorized biography of two different questions of Robert Pollard and Guided by Voices. Um, well, a, a long a long and uh, tortuous trail from there to here, about 20 years um, spanning that whole process. I, I first got into Guided by Voices in 1997 when I heard Mag Yearwood playing in a record store. Um, and, you know, by the third song I heard, I think it was I Am a Tree and then the old grunt and bulldog skin. And by the time I'd heard that kind of, you know, uh, uh, variety of styles all in one album, I went up to the clerk and said, what is this? Give it to me. I have to have it. Um, and loved it. Loved the, the mystery of it, of the packaging, kind of drew me in. Went back a couple days later and said, okay, I've got Mag Earwig. What do I get next? And the guy said, well, you either need to get Alien Lanes or B-1000. And, you know, being an editor and English major, I thought, well, I better get A before B. So... I got Alien Lanes and loved that too, and then you know, from there started buying all I could. Um, fast forward to many years later, I was no longer living in Boulder. I was in, uh, uh, well, here in, here in D.C., I guess. I was in New York for a while in between there, but um, I'd gotten into GBV, seen them a bunch, and started going out to uh, Heat Fest, which is the annual gathering of, of GBV fans out in Dayton, Ohio, um, and, you know, met Bob briefly there, um, was just, you know, over the moon to even talk to him for a few minutes, but he's, he's just such a nice guy, he's really, uh, really generous with his time and gracious as far as fans go, I mean, pretty much if, if you love his music, he, that's, then you've already... It's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great starting point for him, he's, very appreciative of anybody who, who likes his music and somebody who's going to take the time and money and effort to travel all the way to Dayton to go to this gathering. You know, he's, he appreciates that sort of thing too. So, 
to him briefly and got you know had gotten to become friends with a bunch of people in Dayton and uh, just slowly through mutual friends um, hung out with them a couple times and uh, got to the point where we would go to Dayton whenever we'd go to Dayton we'd you know get in touch with Bob somehow and see if he wanted to hang out for a little bit um, and uh, in in the course of uh, one of those conversations summer of 2014. Uh, my buddy Jeremy and I were hanging out with Bob at a bar in Dayton and, you know, having zero plan in my head as to how I would actually do it if he said yes. Uh, I suggested at some point that afternoon that, you know, or suggested slash asked if he would let me write a book about him, if I could do that, write a book about Guided by Voices and him. And, um, and you know, he didn't really answer then. He took a couple months to think about it. And when our band Joseph Airport was getting ready to open for Guided by Voices, the one we opened for them one time, um, just before that, he he said, "Okay," he said, "He said I thought about it, and, and let's let's hear your idea. Let's let's hear your idea that you've got for for this book." Um, so at that point, I pitched him the idea for a biography of his life, not a not a book about Guided by Voices that would be, you know. Uh, all the technical information maybe you want to know about Guided by Voices itself, but rather a biography of his life that would, of course, you know, through the course of that telling, you, you can't really get around telling the story of Bob's life if you're telling the story of Guided by Voices. So, um, they are inter- kind of melded into one idea. Yeah, they are yeah. intertwined. And, and the one, you know, I have, you know, at the very top of my notes, and, and this is a... In a, a uh, a commendation of the highest degree, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, there's, his life changed uh, at 38 with B Thousand and and playing these New York, the string of New York shows for uh, CMJ festivals. Sort of, they're coming out ultimately. You know, there's a lot of, but that doesn't happen until halfway through the book, till page 154. So, I was thrilled um, as a, as an avid consumer of rock and roll books uh, and, and these stories you know are, I find fascinating but the fact that you don't arrive at the sort of breakthrough moment for the band until halfway through the book I love that and uh, tell us if that was uh, strategic or, or you know how you sort of arrived at that decision well first I just want to say thanks I'm glad you like that about the book um, it you know that idea kind of started for me there's a point in Jim Greer's excellent book hunting accidents where um he quotes bob as saying that there could have been an entire book about all the childhood stories before there was ever a gbv and we would have called that book black ghost pie (laughs) and ever since i read that i thought wow i want to read that book i want to read black ghost pie so um you know and 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 that's kind of the direction that the interviews went it was you know it was really um if you're going to write a definitive book about the band guided by voices that you know, you and I both know that book could be 1,400 pages long with appendices, and you might not even get all the details of everything in there. Well, that'd be one for every album, I believe. One page for every right, album. Right, exactly. You, that, you, you could write that. Um, but that being a little beyond the scope of this, that it really helped to... Um, it was a benefit of calling it Bob's biography rather than a book about, about GBV because it gave me a place in my head where I could kind of, you know, when it's time to cut stuff out I had to make some hard cuts and there were things that honestly I would like to have in the book but then in the end I was thinking well how, what, is, what is this really important to it's important to the discography or is it 
uh, is it crucial for the reader to know this to be able to understand the course of Bob's life and where it went from here to there, you know? The story of how he came to overdub, uh, you know, Beard of Lightning by Phantom Tollbooth is a really interesting and funny little story, but, you know, is it crucial to understanding Bob's life to know that? Probably not. Um, and so, uh, and in the course of the writing, it became clear to me that, you know, once they, once they hit in 1994, there is just about literally a ton of scholarship and articles, interviews, profiles, reviews. Um, I mean, there was a ton of material written about them in the 90s, so there's a lot of stuff out there in the public record that, you know, kind of seemed like, you know, do we really need a book to define all these things? Um, and in the end, when I was putting it all together, just, you know, some of the most interesting stories and, and the most interesting things were were what he went through and, and, and what he was able to, you know, withstand <laughs> that, before things finally turned around for him. I mean, there were the, the mythology, and it isn't um, mythology, it is uh, the true story, but, you know, that, that myth was sort of uh, alive and well, you know, when I first discovered the band, obviously when you probably first discovered the band, you know, that there was this 38-year-old uh, husband, father, teacher, from the Midwest who, you know, wrote all these great songs and, and nobody knew who the hell he was and nobody in his hometown liked him um, right. or liked the band. Um, you know, that's a great story. Turns out it's true. Yeah, you know what? That's the thing. It's, it's a true story, but but part of the thing I wanted to do in this book is show how I think it's reductive. Um, it's definitely true, but it, it's it's reductive in the sense that, you know, it's... it's it, um, it makes a good lead for a, for a quick story in a newspaper. You know, it made, it's a great hook. Um, but to me, the truth of it wasn't that he was a father and a school teacher who suddenly became a rock star. Uh, it's more going at it from the point of view that he was always a rock star and always wanted to be one from a very young age and spent a lot of time working and preparing and, you know, getting his chops on his imaginary bands and imaginary records uh, and, you know, doing all the other things you have to do in life to get along and make a living and, and survive and support your family. But when he got his break, to me, you know, it wasn't that he suddenly uh, transformed into a rock star. It was, he was able to drop all these other costumes and masks that he was wearing and be genuine. Be, come out. Be the person he was meant to be. Yeah, it's just that, I mean, I guess my, my point in contrasting that or, or my surprise in saying that it's true is is that there is a lot of uh, engineered mythology around other artists and, and uh, bands. Yes. And, and so this, you know, as it turned out, was uh, more um, factual, factually based than, you know, uh, X number of uh, press releases I've read in my life that, that you know, make people seem tougher, cooler, uh, smarter than they actually are. Um, right. There was also, I mean, I always was, you know, taken, it took a long time for the, you know, for the sports and music interest in uh, the world to merge and people able to, you know, sort of admittedly like both. I mean, here's a guy, too, and it always struck me as interesting. You know, here's the front man uh, who threw a no-hitter at Wright State and his brother who was a starting point guard at ASU. I mean, that's, that's, that's no, that's not, uh, uh, you know, that's not a meager achievement. That's, a, that's incredible. I, I totally agree with you, and to me, it's just another one of those uh, contradictions about Bob. You know, he's he's a he's a man of contradictions in many ways. 
So how was it? How... As, as most human beings are, but I just I just find it interesting to study to study the uh, you know the different parts of him, how he balances them. He's, but as you say, he's like uh, you know I think there's some some song they started playing randomly in the middle of a show once, and they were singing "Freaks versus the Jocks," "Freaks versus the Jocks." <laughs> um, you know that's how he came up in high school. It was you had your freaks and you had your jocks, and never the twain shall meet. Um, but always interesting to me how he managed to, to walk on both sides of that line. Like he was just wild enough to, to be in with the freaks, but he was straight laced enough to be in with the jocks too. Hot freaks. Um, so what was it? Tell, tell me about the process of actually, I mean, you've, you've pitched the story um, in a, in as a classic a, a context as you can think, uh, sitting in a Dayton bar with the man himself. Um, how, how was the writing of the book? How did the research come around and what was the experience like, um, you know, dealing with the, the numerous people that you spoke to and putting this together? Um, well, we started with, we started just with basic interviews, uh, you know, put the tape recorder on the table. Um, most of the interviews that I did with Bob were, uh, in person. We, we, and, and usually in a bar, um, in Dayton. Uh, and so, but those would go on for anywhere from two to four hours, basically an entire afternoon on tape. Um, so I brought back all those files. I think I ended up with between those interviews and phone interviews, there was somewhere in the vicinity of 60 hours of tape. Um, so transcribing those tapes into, uh, into text was, that was a bear for me because I don't type that fast. Um, but once I got all those transcribed, um, I basically just dumped all of that text and from all the different interviews and all the transcripts into one huge document and then started at the beginning, like, you know, as though I were hacking through a jungle with a machete, um, grabbing pieces like, well, this story, uh, is somewhere later in the book. This story is right at the beginning. The story's in the middle and just grabbing bits of text and trying to roughly place them where chronologically in the story they're going to go. Um, because our interviews were totally conversational, not chronological at all. Um, and, you know, I did, in the middle of one tape, I might have Bob's thoughts on all the songs from Propeller and then some other tape months, months separated. He's talking about B-1000 or whatever. Um, so it's just basically trying to organize that into something resembling a chronology. Um, basically then, deconstructing a collage. Pretty much, yeah. It was taking the pieces and then and then having to smooth out that collage into something resembling more, more of a straight narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, along with that, Bob let me use his scrapbooks. He's got about, uh, I think there's about 19 of them now where there's huge oversized scrapbooks where he's saved every single clipping, review, old photographs, uh, all sorts of old things going all the way back to Anacrusis wow. um, in 79. That's, that's the first page was an, uh, an Anacrusis set list. And then there are, you know, old flyers. Uh, there's a handwritten note from Thurston Moore in there, a handwritten note from Ron House when he got a copy mm-hmm. of some record from them. Um, and that was just, I, I minored in history in college, so for me, those were, you know, that's primary source material from the time. Um, and he had clippings from 
zines, oh, tiny Ohio zines with a, the circulation of probably 50, you know. And if they reviewed Devil Between My Toes, he has a little clipping of it. Um, and some of the pages in the scrapbook, especially as you go on, uh, Bob actually cut out photographs of people, and, and even the pages in the scrapbook are collages in and of themselves. Um, so just looking at them was pretty amazing, but it was a, a, just a huge trove of source material. And that pretty much went chronological. So as I was going through my manuscript, um, writing that out, I had all of the extant uh, material that's out there, the Greer book, the uh, B-1000 book that uh, Mark Woodworth wrote, um, the old GBB site that had compiled all of the reviews and articles that had been written about them over the years. Um, and it was just a matter of going through at that point, page by page, and just... Uh, transforming the transcript into into uh, writing and narrative. I also come at it from a, uh, I guess what you'd call a new journalism perspective where I uh, write scenes with dialogue, you know, kind of tell the story uh, uh, in my own words with dialogue in sort of in the way Bob described it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you've got, you've, kind of you have a history. Cinematic feel. I'm sorry, Tanner. Uh, you, you, I mean, you have a history yourself of, of doing, uh, you know, uh, publishing. Uh, I guess not quite graphic novels, but um, you know, do, working with the with the visuals and the and the text as you as you write your books. Um, so that must have come yeah. in handy as well. It it does actually. Um, yeah, it it, it did. It, I, I mean, all a lot of different things I've worked on in the past. You know, however many years. That's, that's kind of it's kind of interesting because I was working in a in a, a cubicle as an editor until I was thirty six years old. So <laughs> when I was thirty six, I was finally able to get out of that damn cubicle and, and write for a living. Thanks to Bob. That's great. Um, I'll always be grateful to him for giving me the chance to do this because it. I mean, it changed my life. He changed a lot of people's lives, but he, he definitely changed mine. Well, there, it's it's funny there. You know, there is that I. I and I love this about it, and, and I mean nothing but uh, um, you know good from from this comment. But there he, there is a lot of um, hiring and firing um, of personnel from what is essentially a non-existing uh, enterprise at the beginning. It's it's pretty you know it's one of the more humorous elements of the book. Tell us what he's like as a as a general and a leader. Um, well, I think what he's like as a leader of the band depends a lot on the overall chemistry of the band because I don't, I, don't, I don't ever get the sense that he wants to fire people or that he wants to be you know the, 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 the boss or the dictator or anything like that um, I was just I was actually with them this weekend uh, when they played a show in Brooklyn uh, last Thursday and uh, ju- I mean just to give the example of the current lineup it's amazing to see all of them together they it's it's clear that they i mean they're laughing they're joking around they're like a you know they're they're a gang of friends more than more than a band or or you know you know uh, hired musicians with their with their boss or anything like that they really are uh, there's a there's a, a camaraderie and a, and a brotherhood between them that's you know hasn't been there for all the lineups but for a lot of them and uh it's just really a good feeling to see them all together enjoying each other's company. 
Well, it does seem like, um, you know, even with people who are dismissed, uh, they're never fully exiled. They're, they're always somewhere um, ready to be in, you know, ready to do the Nigel Tufnell, you know, waved back onto the stage in Japan move, um, you know, at any That's given right. moment. That's right. Jim, you know, Jim Greer, after he left the band, he, um, he was, has been writing uh, the press releases for Rockathon and for the records for, for years and years now. You know, he's, he's always been close and around. Um, you know, Tim Tobias left the band, um, but then later was working with his brother Todd and has done a bunch of work on Circus Devils. So it's true. It's, it's like, it's like I think it says in the book at some point, it's more like a, like a gang or a family than it is a... A, band. a family where you occasionally you don't get invited to the holidays if somebody's pissed off but uh, That's right. you know actually my Jim Greer was responsible for one of my favorite moments in the book uh, um, inadvertently uh, when he moves to Dayton and asks a friend from Dayton to to give him a list of, of bands that are worth checking out he said he got a list of about 40 bands this is 1992 this is the year before B-1000 right. it's a list of 40 bands GBV not among them and this is Local bands in Dayton. Um, exactly. And GBV wasn't on. He wasn't even on the radar. Somebody who lived in Dayton their whole life and could write a list of forty bands had never heard of Bad About Voices. Exactly. So I mean that Great. gives. I mean that that also gives you so much. Um, you know, sort of. You know that that gives you so much of an idea of, of where they were operating and uh, before this sort of mystical you know breakthrough in in um, you know the in '93 when they when they go to New York and they realize that New York loves them. But one of the other things that you know struck me um, about uh, you know Bob Pollard is you know he you spend a lot of time concentrating on how they couldn't really get a foothold in their own hometown. And yet it's very apparent that he would never leave. Um, hates traveling to Europe at the beginning. Um, loves the reception he gets in New York, but feels very uncomfortable there. It's always get back to home base. What, what, tell me what the relationship is with Dayton. Um, well, I think he has a comfortable relationship with Dayton now. Um, you know, he's, like I said, he, that's, that's his place. He likes to get back there. Um, it's got Marion's Pizza. It's got Wings. It's it's got or Wings Sports Bar, I should say. It's got um, that's his place. I think you know. I think also it's his place of, of information or not information. Sorry, inspiration is what I meant mm. to say. Um, the information that he's getting from the cosmos. Um, I came across a phrase in my in my notebook. I was going through an old notebook today before the interview, and I had written at one point that Dayton is Bob's daemon, the A E M O N, as in you know his the old word for the for the muse or the spirit mm-hmm. of creativity. I really I think he has that uh, relationship with it. that's it, he gets his inspiration from there when he's with his friends when he's out with people. Something you know. Uh, phrase somebody says that catches his ear or something he mishears on a television or a sign that he sees in Dayton something it's you know um, it can inspire a title or an entire song for him so I think it's important for him to be there because it it fuels his creativity in some way that uh, might not even be explainable by science how it happens but I, I think it's a thing I think there's definitely a spiritual connection yeah I think it well it's also I think you run the risk uh, you know, in any conversation, I think any sentence fragment or mixed metaphor is uh, grounds for a, for a new song title. Uh, 
Somebody, I, d- doesn't Pete? I think Pete Jameson said that at one point to me. I put it in the book that they had it old when they were hanging out. They'd say, "Watch what you say." Bob's gonna make a song out of it. It's not, it's unbelievable, but I you know I I also do think in the you know when I discovered GBV um, you know somewhere in ninety four ninety five saw them the first time in ninety five um, you know that was part of it. I was studying um, some you know very highly acclaimed um, you know sort of uh, you know the the sort of you know, highest echelon of, of American poets at that point, you know, your Charles Simics and your Russell Edsons. And I studied with, um, Jim Tate. And the thing is about his lyrics is they, they are poetry. I mean, it, it is, you know, there's somebody who thinks like this and writes like this is not just, uh, you know, dicking around with pop songs. He's, uh, you know, he's writing some really remarkable, absurdist, um, poetry and, and, you know, manipulating the language. How deep does he go in explaining this to you? And, um, you know, what do you make of it? Um, well, first, I, I totally agree with you that his, his uh, verse definitely functions as poetry on its own. It could function in that way. Um, he doesn't... I don't think I really... Sometimes the time will ask him, you know, what did that song mean or... You know, or joking about you know what what a song came from. But to me, I love how um, the multiple layers of meaning that he'll put in by either either on the level of one word that can is spelled one way or maybe spelled another way, and the difference between the the spelling and the pronunciation and the homonym that's there will uh, you know create a weird effect where you could read a line in one of two different ways. Um, and a song like you know, and but they can mean both. Um, like a song, there's a Boston Spaceship song called I'll Make It Strong For You. And we were once joking with him. I said, I said, oh, that's, that, that was a song about making coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he laughed and, you know, and, and that could have been the inspiration for it could have been, hey, can I have some coffee? I, I, I want it strong. I'll make it strong for you. And then, you know, that leads to something. But the song itself is more about, um, you know, being your best for another person. I'll, you know, being, being as strong as you can and being somebody that somebody else can lean on. You, the song can also be read in that kind of a way. Um, and I like that. Kind of, it amuses me. It makes me laugh that it, something could be so mundane and yet so timeless and meaningful at the same time. Yeah, but I just I was more and more curious. Just I mean, is he would he shy from from having um, his words regarded in such a lofty manner, or, or is that something that I th- that he would or something he would be flattered by and also slough off at the same time? I think I think he would. I think you. I mean, you know, I can't tell you what's in his head, but I think he. I think he would be flattered by that. I think he would appreciate any comparisons like that. Um, you know, it all depends on the song too. There's there are some songs of his that are uh, more solemn, and there are other songs. You know, some songs can be uh, not jokes of a song, but a song can be humorous and you know make you laugh like any good comedy would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking about a guy who wrote Kicker of Elves, so that's uh... <laughs> right, Kicker of Elves. Yeah, um, and it... uh, and and don't forget Cash Rivers. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, any mind that can come up with Cash Rivers, he's he's. There's definitely a comedian in there. <laughs> but that said, you know, I mean, the, you know, the, there's always that. Um, you know, it, it was it was interesting um, that you, you know, the, I, the first time I 
ever had it brought to my attention that this quote-unquote classic lineup of GBV really only lasted for about, uh, you know, three-week tour at one point. Um, yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, sort of go through, you know, tell us about that, but then I'll come back with a follow-up. Okay. Um, well, that, I mean, I'm not sure what, the, I mean, it, it was undeniably a great lineup and electric when you see them live. You see the, the tapes of, of Greg Demos, like a whirling dervish in those striped white pants. Um, you know, they, they were definitely firing on all cylinders on that tour, but it's just that. Uh, um, I think that was just that's the lineup that's associated with with that time, 1993 to 1994. Um, it, all the photographs coming out at the time they broke are are of that lineup pretty much. Um, and I just I think a lot of people have have really really great memories of the first time they heard GBV and they associate those memories with that lineup. Yeah, it, 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 I mean it's funny for me because I you know I saw them with that line or I saw them um, I think in '95 opening for Urge Overkill for the first time and then okay. you know 2010 I remember them billing. Uh, show that I saw in New York as you know GBV's classic lineup, thinking that you know I, that it had been around for you know that they did the you know they put out the three big you know the sort of uh, seminal you know the albums that really broke them, but you know I was set I know I was set straight by your book um, in the sense that really that that band as a live act only played about sixteen dates ever correct. Right. Yeah, pretty much, and and the amount of songs that that lineup actually records where they're all in the studio is uh, two, very small, two <laughs> or three, something like that. Yeah, not counting outtakes, but the ones that actually appear on albums, yeah, it's it's, it's either two or three, something like that. And is there any? I mean, is there any lingering feeling of of resentment? Because I mean, obviously, the man is prolific, and the band is prolific as hell. Um, that the the world sort of concentrates on those three albums as a sort of classic period. I mean, is that something that he's grown to accept, or is that something that you know uh, chafes him a little bit, or or is he just happy to be heard? Um, no, I don't know. I think I think he appreciates the the reverence that are, that's afforded to those albums, and um, I mean, I think I think that he would like like just like I would that if more of those people could uh, maybe listen to the current lineup with a little bit more of an open mind because this is it, it may as well be a, a brand new classic lineup new golden age of GBV to my mind because the, the last couple albums it has a lot to do like what I said like I said the, uh, the camaraderie and the chemistry with all the people in the band Scott is you know his perfect lineup um, but, but these guys are just Bob's experimenting, going in weird directions, going in directions he might not have gone otherwise, and um, I just think we're in the midst of a, a period right now that's as creatively fertile as the classic lineup. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I did try to, uh, I, you know, I attempted. I'm a, I'm a big fan, and I attempted to stay current um, with most of their work. But I, I, I swear to God, I think he puts up. Um, music at a rate that I can't even I couldn't even listen to all of it if I if I tried have you do you consider yourself something of a completionist or um I I am a completist yes I I actually I've I've done what they call the alpha omega a couple times which is where you put on I guess it starts with forever since breakfast but you put on forever since breakfast and then you go through 
listen to any other music in the interim. You just go through from the beginning to the end. And is that is that GBV only, or is that solo and side projects? That's every, everything. Wow. Everything Bob's ever put out. Wow. That, 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 so which took longer, read, uh, writing the book or, or uh, committing to the Alpha Omega? <laughs> writing the book. I did the Alpha Omega twice in my life. I haven't done it in, I haven't done it in a couple of years. It's, it's harder now. There's probably 15 or 20 releases since the last time I did it. So it's like the, the time would be expanded, but definitely took longer to, to write the book. Like, I guess uh, four years writing the book from the time when three years and 11 months from the time when Bob said, go ahead, do it, to publication. It is, uh, I will reiterate, it is an excellent book, and, and this is nice. I've had the opportunity um, this year uh, to read, you know, to a golden age of, of music books. I'm between this and Trouble Boys, uh, Bob Mayer, who's a... Um, That's a great one. Uh, a, um, a, what do you call a publishing label mate, I guess, a... Uh, um, he, that is on Capo as well. And then um, Ryan Walsh's uh, Astral Weeks book, which is also fantastic. Um, oh, yeah. I've, I've, yeah, I like that one a lot, too. I like that one a lot. I've been talking to him a little bit on, uh, on Facebook about that back and forth. Yeah, and he, uh, so, yeah, we've had all three of you on. And, um, you know, it's been, like I said, it's been a, a fantastic time for, for music books. And, um, you know, hopefully people will, will read this because I think it's, it's one of my favorites. And, and you really do... Um, teach somebody who thinks that they knew a lot about GBV, a lot about Bob Pollard and GBV. So I appreciate that very much. Well, thank you. I was that's that's really what I was hoping for. You know, it's that was really the goal to put something in there that would be new for people who have been following the band for all these years. Make sure there's something new in there for them too. I'm looking forward to seeing them in the fall, and I'm sorry I missed them last Thursday, but um, it's still I, I imagine still as good as it ever was. No. I'm telling you, it's it's it may be better. <laughs> Bob's Bob's doing the high kicks. It's, there's really there's there's really nothing missing from these rock shows. I, I'm entirely satisfied by everyone I've seen. It's it's just an experience. That's phenomenal. Well, I um I will so appreciate you coming on and uh, talking to us about the book, and I and I'm wishing you the best of luck. Um, I think um you know anybody who is you know. F- uh, loves the band. Anybody who's sort of just uh, sort of has a tertiary knowledge of, of the band is going to absolutely dig into this book. It's it's so well done. And um, again, appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you writing the book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, we will talk soon. All right. Take care, man. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>